Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. Please follow along with me as I read. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you have just joined us, we are journeying through the Gospel of Luke, and you'll want to turn your Bibles to Luke 18, the text that was just read. And we did a bit of a review last week, but I just kind of want to again remind us where we are in the narrative. In chapter 9, at the end of 9, we began what's called by some scholars the travel narrative. It's a section that is moving Jesus from Galilean region all the way to Jerusalem. Now, it's not that he hasn't traveled to Jerusalem during this time frame. But the focus of the narrative is that we are moving towards the cross. We're moving to the place where he will be tried, where he will be crucified, where he will be buried, and where he will rise again. And so from the end of 9 all the way to 19, there's a discussion of what does it really mean to follow Jesus? Luke is careful, and the reason we're going to spend some time looking at the end of 8 and 19, chapter 18, excuse me, and 19, is we're going to meet three individuals. This week we're going to meet the rich young ruler. Uh, Luke doesn't refer to him as young, but Matthew and Mark, in telling this story, mention that he's young. So we have further insight into the life of this fellow that Jesus encounters. But we'll also look at a blind man, and then we're going to look at a wee little man called Zacchaeus in two weeks from now. So we're looking at these three figures, and it's pivotal to the narrative. What Luke is trying to do in explaining discipleship and highlighting what, Luke, what Jesus has taught comes to fruition in these three characters. It answers all of the questions of what does it mean to follow Jesus? How does that entail what, it, what discipleship means, etc., etc.? And that sets us up for the latter part of the, the gospel, which is moving to Jerusalem. It's also a period from the end of 9 all the way to 19 where Jesus is coming alongside his disciples and trying to help them in the process. 
And so if you have an outline there, you can follow along. I jokingly say there are no quizzes. We might just have one at the end of the service. Who knows? But if you like to follow along, there's the notes for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and we are so grateful for your word. Father, in it, we learn of, of a, a means in which we can learn to walk with you, but to have a relationship with you. It's spelled out in these chapters in Luke, but it's spelled out elsewhere in the Gospels and in the letters that are penned that are included in the New Testament and even in the Old. And so, Father, we thank you for these scriptures, these 66 books, and we thank you for a time this morning when we can come and study your word. And Father, there's a lot that's weighing on many people's hearts. Perhaps there's some watching this morning that are struggling, even breathing with COVID. Others have lost loved ones in the last month. And so, Father, help us to clear the cobwebs for a few minutes, put the blinders on, and allow the text to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's go to the text and let's look at this, starting in Luke 18, verse 18. It says, a certain ruler. That term is loaded. And some scholars say, ah, he's a religious leader. He's one of the Pharisees. And the term can be used for that very orthodox group of Judaism in the first century, the Pharisees. They were strict. They adhered to the law. They were loved by the people even though Jesus has a lot of rhetoric against them or ways to exhort them into living for him. But the Pharisees are a, a large popular group and often they're referred to as rulers. But the term is also used of synagogue leaders as well as civic leaders. And so I think in the case here, we're probably dealing with a civic leader, but regardless, after this chapter, that term is always used of people who are hostile to Jesus. Watch that as we go through the text because we're setting again that stage for the latter part of the gospel. And he asks a very profound question, doesn't he? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the same question asked of the expert of religious law back in chapter 10 of Luke. He said, how, how do I get eternal life? And what did Jesus say in that discussion in 10, which we studied you got to love me and you got to love others, right? And so the good Samaritan was given the parable to illustrate the latter part. And then I think the encounter with Mary and Martha highlights what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But here, the question is asked again by a prominent leader of the community. I would dare say that if people were honest, it's the number one question which lies behind or below the surface, isn't it? In fact, it's interesting, 72% of Americans believe in some sort of afterlife. Even of those polled back in 2020, 32% of atheists and agnostics believe there's an afterlife. <laughs> but the question is, how do you get there? This ruler understands the teachings of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and that there is an afterlife. But the question is, how do you obtain that? It's what's plaguing the populace, 
right? We, again, we heard it in 10, we see it here, and I would argue it also plagues our society. If someone is truly honest, especially if they're lying in ICU, the question that they'll ask or needs to be asked is, what's beyond this? <laughs> and that's what the question the ruler is asking. He refers to Jesus as good. Did you catch that? Good teacher. And Jesus quickly responds and says, why do you call me good? There's, according to the Old Testament, no human being is good, or we could exchange the word for righteous. And Jesus isn't saying, I'm not good. He's asking him of what is good. Jesus wants the ruler to focus on God and his will so that he will be genuinely responsive to the Lord. If, the truth, if this guy really wants to follow after God, then he should respond to the one who's bringing the teaching. And, and, and that is the question really, isn't it? That he's asking, or should be asking? <laughs> Are you the good teacher? Because this one who is good, which is Jesus, is the one who brings everlasting life. John three sixteen. for whosoever believes in the one that God has sent will not be condemned, but they'll have everlasting life, the, the eternal life. And so that's what the question he's asking. And so by Jesus highlighting in his question in verse 19, why do you call me good? That's the crux of the whole matter. Do you understand who I am in this process? Then you would understand how do you obtain eternal life. Interesting, isn't it? As he moves through this. Well, Jesus, after volleying with a question, which was typical of rabbinic teaching, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. He then goes to verse 20 and he says, you know the commandments. Jesus doesn't question his knowledge of the Mosaic law where he is questioning him earlier was his understanding of who he is and how that's obtained. But then Jesus gives us a list. Now, we've got a slide here of the 10 commandments. If we could show, and we'll look at this. There's the laundry list, right? The 10 that are spelled out in Exodus 20, part of the Mosaic covenant, the law that was given to the Israelites. And you know the 10, no other gods, no idols, do not take the name of the Lord in vain, keep the Sabbath, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and do not covet. Jesus, when he says, you know the commandments, and then let's look, next slide shows us, these are the ones that he names. He doesn't name all of the commandments, does he? And they're not in the order of the 10. Look at this, he says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, and honor your own father and mother. Which I love that he mentions last, because that's the only command with a, a promise that you'll live long. <laughs> and the guy's seeking eternal life. But nonetheless, he lists five through nine of the Ten Commandments. Now number nine, if we can go to the next slide, number nine uh, coveting is probably not an issue necessarily. The man is extremely wealthy. Where we see a bulk of the commandments Jesus doesn't mention, oh, thank you very much, are the first four. Do you see that? The first four that are mentioned. Why didn't he mention these? And what's going on here? Because the man will state in verse 21, I have obeyed wholeheartedly the ones you've listed. That is... Five through nine. 
I believe what we're having here is an issue of the internal, not the external. The external list, that is the outward demonstration that you are a follower of Yahweh would be obviously five through nine. This is how I interact with people around me. But the internal, how do you view God? How do you relate to him? That is where the crux lies with this rich young ruler. Let me give you an example of what I'm saying here. Uh, recently, a while back, we went to a Pacers game. And it, the Pacers were playing the Bucks. Now, my son is a avid Bucks fan. I know, boo hiss, right? He's not rooting for the Pacers. Uh, but they have Giannis, and so that's why he loves the Bucks. We told him that going to the game, you can't wear your Bucks outfits. You're going to have to wear your Pacers. You know, we want to blend in. I don't want to stand out in a game. Sorry. Uh, it's bad enough as it is. So he wore his Pacers shirt. He tried to root for them. But every time Giannis made a, a basket, he'd look at me and his eyes would go, oh, you know. It was subtle. But the point is, he wasn't really rooting for the Pacers. It looked good, but internally, I mean, he was hooting and hollering for the Bucks, right? And, and that's the idea here. Humanity's greatest plight, I would argue, centers upon the externals. The need for the transformation of heart seems unnecessary, doesn't it? When we can check off the do's and the don'ts. Well, I do this, I help out here, I give here. The danger in checking off the list is our list becomes our own list. We become the standard. I taught a course on ethics and they had to write a personal statement of ethics. And I had a student, she literally stated, I take a little bit of the scriptures, the Bible. I take a little bit of um, Hinduism. I take a little bit of Satanism. And that is my ethical model. And I wrote across the page, no, your ethical model is egoism. You are the center of your ethical standard, right? And, and the danger of checking off the list is all of a sudden we become the, the rubric, right? For the check, the list that we perform. And our actions need to be elevated or evaluated on God's standards, this is the problem I would argue with philosophy. It doesn't start with God. It starts with man, right? Well, philosophy has some things to offer, but a proper theology centers first on the Lord and, and what all that follows. It's doctrine than duty. And if we were to go back to that list of the 10, the first set, this is the problem with the rich young ruler. His theology's off, right? He, he has established, well, this is the standard I'm abiding by. And, and Jesus is highlighting that. He's playing right into the ruler, saying, yeah, tell me what you do. Jesus knows what he does. Yeah. And in fact, look what the, the, the ruler says. I have wholeheartedly made all of these laws since my youth. Good for you, right? Yay. The point is, he's missed it. And, and that's what we're going to see. It's why Paul will spend 11 chapters dealing with the doctrine of justification, mean be declared right. It's not until 12 that he starts to deal with duties. Ephesians, Ephesians 1 through 3, doctrine. It's not until chapter 4 you get to there with duty. Kent Hughes wrote, Nothing is of greater importance than loving God. If we fail to take this seriously, we may find at the end of our lives that all of our works counted for 
nothing. He wants us to be, before we do, loving him first. And Jesus knows this. I think he's stringing this ruler along, saying, oh, you know the commandments? And then he lists some of those from five onwards. And the guy goes, yep, I got those. Yeah, well, the point is you don't have one through four. The point is you've not had a transformation of your heart. And you say, well, how can a guy say, yeah, I've, I've kept all these commandments? Well, the, the idea of completing the, the law or fulfilling it, that's what we see in the Old Testament. And he says since youth, and we're told in Matthew's gospel that this is a young ruler. In essence, he's saying, if this is all that's required, <laughs> I'm in good shape. I got this taken care of. Eternal life, here we come. Right? I've got it. This is awesome. And again, it's another danger of works. It is that it elevates self and it creates an illusion that all is well. Have you shared the gospel with someone who says, yeah, I don't really need that. I mess up every now and then, but you know, I'm a good person. I'm liked by my friends, my coworkers. I do some great things. And yet, like this ruler, they know deep down it's not right. Because why would he ask the question in verse 18? If you have it all together, why would you wonder how to inherit eternal life? Because he knows deep down, I would argue, there's something missing. Jesus told his followers and the crowd, remember the Sermon on the Mount, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're toast. And anyone sitting in that crowd... When they heard that, they would have broken out in a huge sweat. I, I can't be better than the Pharisees. They're the frozen chosen, right? I mean, they've got laws and regulations and they adhere the things. And, you know, there's no way I can adhere to that. What was Jesus saying? He wasn't saying that you have to do all of these things and more. What he's talking about is a transformation. And that's found in 2 Corinthians 5. For he hath made him, Christ, to be sent for us who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God. There's only one way to be seen as righteous. There's only one way to inherit eternal life. And that's being seen as righteous before God. And how can that happen? There's only one, through the transformation, through one who has come to understand that I need to repent of my sin and accept Jesus as that sacrifice, the atonement for my sin. And that's what's missing with the rich young ruler, isn't it? <laughs> this righteousness he self-imposed or self-seen based on his assessment in verse 21. I've done it. There's no repentance. The, the ruler is not recognizing any of his shortcomings. There's certainly pride and there's self-reliance. He's not going to repent. I love <clears throat> the old English pastor Ryle. He said, our best works before we are justified are little better than splendid sins. <laughs> yea for you Mr. Ruler all these great things you have done it's a pile of manure before an almighty God because there's no righteousness or transformation in your heart and again I think the ruler knew that that's why he's asking this question to start 
The only successful works of humanity prior to salvation were the holes in Christ's hands and feet and the piercing in his sight. Right? That's the only thing we accomplished well, was crucifying our Savior. Thankfully, he did it on his own accord for us. And so Jesus comes to this ruler after he says, Yep, I've been a good little boy. I mean, I am the teacher's pet. I got it made. And Jesus, when he heard this, said to him, watch this in verse 22. I love it. Jesus, well, there is one thing you lack. Can you imagine? Here's a guy who's got it all together. He's wealthy. One thing I lack? I mean, he's got the latest iPhone 13. He's got every Lego set they've ever came out with, right? I mean, he's had every flavor of crumble cookie. He's got it. He doesn't need anything. And Jesus said, well, there's one thing you lack. <laughs> I love it. And Jesus is just reeling him in here. And, and, he, and he says to him, notice what he says, one thing you lack, sell all that you have Give the money to the poor and you will have a treasure in heaven which is equated with eternal life. And then you can come follow me. <laughs> All of the commandments are boiled down to really an issue of wealth. And it shouldn't surprise us. 45% of the content from chapter end of chapter 9 until 19 deal with possessions and money. Whew. Why? Because I think it's one of the major stumbling blocks it's the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. It, it's the hindrance here. Never in Scripture, or sh let me rephrase that, in the law are we to divest of all of our possessions. Judaism didn't teach that either in the first century. But it is a distinct value of Jesus' teaching. Why would Jesus give such a radical command to this ruler? He's not told that to anybody else. At least not to that level. Zacchaeus, uh, we're going to see two weeks from now, he didn't sell everything he had. His little hacienda in Jericho to follow Jesus. Why would he say it of this guy? This one who seems to have it all together. Again, what, he's for, what I think Jesus is doing is forcing this ruler to trust God and humbly rely on him. This ruler needs to place God first. And for this ruler, it's money which is hindering him. Well, notice the ruler's response. He's come to the right person, this ruler. He's asked the right question, how do I get eternal life? But his response is dead wrong. Because notice what it says. When the man heard this, he became very sad. And here's the reason. He was extremely wealthy. <laughs> He's in the billionaire club. I mean, this guy has it all laid before him. And you're asking him to give this up? <laughs> this is the issue. And the text tells us he became very sad. That term means very downcast, perhaps even angry. The earthly possessions are becoming the very curse that this man bears. Again, there's no doubt that there are many things that can hinder us as individuals from following Jesus. It could be peer pressure. It could be a career or even a sinful lifestyle. But in the case of the rich young ruler, that which is hindering him from coming to Christ is his pocketbook. He's loaded. And, and the ruler's not deaf or 
little bit slow. He, full, he fully understands what Jesus has just told him. I, I can't do that. Now, remember, he's just given us a laundry list of things he can't do, or can't, has done, right? He can do. I've done this, I've done this, I've obeyed my parents. But on this one, no, 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 no. Nobody is saved by giving up all the money to the poor. Otherwise, we, again, we'd have an issue with uh, Zacchaeus. I would argue Lydia, the seller of purple. The list could go on. But nobody can be saved who does not repent of their sins and turn away from them. This man's problem is he loved money more than God. Right? And the question again comes to, do you really know who I am? Jesus is asking. Do you under, you're calling me good. Do you, do you really know what that means? That, that's the, that's the, where the rubber's meeting the road, right? <clears throat> well, then Jesus gives, it's just a great picture, isn't it? Jesus uh, noticed this and he said, oh, well, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? He, he, he's playing off uh, his disciples and he said, well, it's easier it's easier, notice that, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Some have translated that a gate. I don't think so. We're talking about a little sewing needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Now, for the disciples, this is hard to hear because in first century Judaism, if you had money, that was an indication that God has greatly blessed you. They would even quote texts such as Deuteronomy 8, you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And sadly, that idea still percolates in the church today, doesn't it? We have those who hold to a health, wealth, gospel, name it, claim it, it's yours. Uh, you have that crowd. But it's even more subtle even in our circles. What I mean by that? I have those who say, well, things are not going well. I haven't had my devotions today. Uh, well, maybe your sinful responses should have called you to have devotions today. But, you know, um, just because the coffee pot ran over doesn't mean it's because you didn't have devotions. Or we are so blessed. Look how God has financially blessed us. Careful. You don't necessarily want to equate the healthy church or a healthy believer with their spiritual, uh, with a pocketbook. It's the spiritual growth and vitality we're wanting to see. And, and, and so it, it comes down to that. But the, the disciples are, are, to see this rich young ruler, they immediately equate him with godliness. He's got it together. He, he, he knows what he's doing. And so then when Jesus gives this analogy, it's, it's, it's a knee-jerk reaction, right? I mean, they're going, what? What are you talking about? I mean, I have trouble threading a needle. Can you imagine ramming a camel through it, the end of a needle? <laughs> I mean, it's Israel's largest animal. It's over 1,300 pounds. Some of them get up to six foot seven inches. I've ridden a camel once, and that's all I care to ever ride one. They're horrible, all right? And the length is up to 11 foot. I mean, I can imagine starting to get the nose through the eye of the needle, but how are you going to get those four long limbs through and that big hump? You get the idea. And the crowd is chuckling, but the point is clearly made, isn't it? It cannot be done. And that's easier than getting this rich guy into heaven. <laughs> Jesus says that a rich person coming to salvation if they're attempting on, on their own, is impossible. And that's true with anything. If there's anything before God, 
salvation, it's impossible. It's relinquishing and allowing the Lord to lead. Daryl Bach in his commentary says, the self-focused security of the wealthy is a padlock against kingdom entry. You might be able to buy a purchase or purchase a ticket to the next Super Bowl or a first class seat across the ocean, but you cannot purchase a ticket for heaven. They are not for sale. <laughs> you could be the member of a local church, a signatory of the giving pledge, a cardholder to the Society for Biblical Ethics, proponent or business ethics, proponent of social justice, or an advocate for sea turtles. But all of this is meaningless when one is talking about eternal life. Because the question is, who is good? Is Jesus really good? Because what you do with Jesus determines all of this. And that's the point that's being made here. And I love it. Jesus states what is impossible for mere humans. And I love this. It's possible for God. Do you remember Mary? Uh, was pregnant. Well, it was announced that she's pregnant by Gabriel, right? And Gabriel says, and by the way, your relative Elizabeth, who is way up in years, is also pregnant. You know, humana, humana, right? This is crazy. And what does Gabriel say? Nothing is impossible for God. <laughs> Coming out of the Christmas season, it, it should tell us nothing is impossible. Seeing an individual coming to Christ and being saved, it's possible with God. And even this ruler, it's possible. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Move him in first place. And again, it's the problem with those first four commandments is placing God first. No, you know, no graven image. Taking the name of the Lord seriously. All of those things, that's where our problem lies with this rich young ruler, and I would argue with all of humanity, is what do you do with Jesus? It's the Lord who can break the spell of wealth, or any spell for that matter, and how? By sending his son and accomplishing what would be impossible and making it possible. It's interesting, look at the, the words that follow in verses 31 through 34. And 18. So 1831, look at this. So you've got this ruler, and after these verses, what we're going to read, we have the blind man, which we'll look at next week, and then you have Zacchaeus. And orbiting around it are these verses. Look what it says. Then Jesus took the 12 aside and said to them, Look, we are going to Jerusalem. Yeah, we know that. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. What is it? For he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, mistreated, spat on. They will flog him severely and kill him. Yet on the third day, he will rise again. There's the gospel. <laughs> it's what we've been looking to. It's how the impossible can be made possible. And it's why Jesus can say, I am good. I am God. And I've come to dwell among humanity for the purpose of coming to die on a cross, to give my life as a ransom for many, so that you might believe and have everlasting life. And if you don't know this, Jesus, if like the rich young ruler, you're, you're hoping that the laundry list of things that you can accomplish will earn you eternal life, you are woefully mistaken. And like the ruler who doesn't repent, at least we never see it in Scripture, you wait for eternal separation from God. Eternal damnation. This is not something to play games with. 
And, and the text is clear. Well, I love Peter's response in verse 28. You just got to love Peter. Foot and mouth disease. Peter says, well, look, we left everything to follow you. <laughs> Reminds me of two siblings. Uh, the one you, you scold for not making their bed, and the other one says, well, I've made my bed all week. <laughs> Thank you, Johnny. Now, Sally, we're back to you, right? You get the idea. And, and this is how I, I just see Peter just, well, we've done all of this for you, Jesus. You know, we're just so good. And, and I think part of this is Peter wants a little confirmation because some things are not computing here. He's been brought up with, if you got money, you've been blessed by God. The rich young ruler just said he's done all of this and he, you're saying he's not part of it. And, and so all of this is not computing. And Peter's saying, well, what about us? We've left everything. And Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth. There is no one who left home or wife, he's not talking about uh, divorcing a wife, but you could say here foregoing marriage, or you have in 1 Corinthians, if an unsaved spouse leaves, let them leave. But this idea, uh, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of God's kingdom, who will not receive many times more in this age. It's huge! Remember, he, he became very sad, the text tells us, I mean, let's face it, our possessions, our careers, our homes, and our relationships are where we find identity, security, and as crazy as it is, sometimes peace, hope, and joy. That's where the world goes, right? I belong to this social group, or this is my family over here. Here's the job that I have. And, and that's what laces it. I remember studying overseas for three years. The first time I left, it was, ooh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> then I came home for Christmas, and to be honest, leaving the second time was very hard. I remember the tears just rolling down as the plane left. My parents were standing at that time. The parents could still stand at the window and wave, uh, you know. And the thrill was gone. I left a job that I absolutely loved to go do doctoral studies. Uh, I left the friends and the net social network that I have to a very isolated study, bleak dorm room. And it was in those times that I realized, you know, none of this matters. It, it's all about the Lord. I think it's what Jesus is doing, the rich young ruler. You find your security, your identity, your peace, your joy in your 401k. But I got news for you, Mr. Ruler. You've missed it. You've missed me. <laughs> and so perhaps this morning, the Lord is trying to grab your attention. The relationships, mm, they're not what you thought they would be. The job you long to have, mm, it's becoming boring. The financial worries keep you awake. Inflation is hitting. It's, you wonder if you can pay the bills at the end of the month. And the list might go on. Look to the one who is good. The one and only who can offer eternal life. And notice what Jesus says to those who do 
In verse 30, they will not only receive many more things in this age, but in the age to come. Eternal life is seen in verse 18, it's seen in 30, it's the inclusio. It, it bookends this section, because that's really the topic we're dealing with here, is what does it mean to really be a follower of him? But in the process, Jesus is saying, not only is there eternal life to those who follow after me, but he says, you will have many times as much as what you've sacrificed. You cannot outgive God. In Matthew and Mark's account, they uh, highlight some more of what Jesus stated here, and that is, you will receive a hundredfold. That's more than what Job got when he lost his children and his livestock. God notes the sacrifice and gives back much more in the terms of a relationship with him and a place where you will find peace, you will find hope, you will find joy and security. I mentioned last week, I wasn't, I had some people say, are you dogging vaccinations? I, I'm not talking about vaccinations. I'm not talking about politics, but it is where people find their security, their joy, or assurance that they're safe. It's found in Christ. Is it not? All, all the, he's the one who is good. And, and, and that's what we see with this rich young ruler. He might've died a wealthy man. He may never have lost his estate or company went bankrupt. But he didn't take it with him. Right? <laughs> oh, he has the diplomas and the honors, especially as he reiterates those to Jesus. Look what I have done. And he certainly has the best camel in town, but it doesn't really matter. The promise isn't just for eternity, it's for life. And only again, if he'd understood what is good. Well, there's some principles here that I think we can apply that I have there in your notes. The first of these is our trust must be in the Lord. That's what we've been highlighting this entire time. Paul states in Philippians, all things are lost and rubbish. They're trash compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. Only God can make a camel pass through the eye of a needle. <laughs> Faith in Jesus cannot exist where there is trust in something else. And so the question this morning, have you trusted Christ? It's for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's the problem with the ruler. He was boasting, right? That's what he was baking on were these things that I did. One pastor writes, hell comes from pride leading to merit, leading to divine entitlement. Heaven results from unworthiness, leading to desperation, leading to grace and mercy. The rich young ruler, he thought he had it all together and his trust was placed in the wrong location. There's a second point here. The Christian faith changes one's values and lifestyles. There's no area off limit. No time frame is given and no options are available. It's Christ and Christ alone. Day in, day out. It's that simple. And I realize this account is what, it, what does it mean to follow the Lord? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? But on a, if we could take it to the next level, it's clear we could talk about what does it mean to really follow after him, those who have made a profession of faith. Recently, I was looking at an individual that was proposed as to hire for a ministry. 
And I went, it looked great on paper. And then I went and looked at a social media, his personal website, and I about fell out of my chair. <laughs> How does that coincide with a Christ follower? And I thought, you know, what happened is if someone did a full-blown audit of our lives? What do I mean by that? Well, they're going to seize your computer tomorrow, and they're going to explore everything that you have on it, including that which you've deleted. Furthermore, they're going to check all your social media postings, even those that you supposedly thought were gone on Snapchat. Furthermore, they're going to pull up all of your IRS filings. They're going to look at all your tax forms. Furthermore, they're going to have interviews of conversations. In fact, they've taped your home so they know what you've said to your wife and your children for the last month. And they have that to audit as well. How would you fare? <laughs> Jesus said, whatever you eat or drink, well, at least the scriptures say, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And it's a repeat, isn't it? There, there's no areas that are off limits if we're following after Christ. There's no time frame that's given and no options are available. I remember an elderly professor would often say to us seminary students, he said, just give me a class who is sold out for Christ and we'll turn the world upside down. He's right. The, the Lord is saying, it's all mine. And he has the right to say to the rich young ruler, sell it all because it's mine. You're mine. All of that I gave you anyways. Get rid of it. I want you to follow me. He has the right to do that, doesn't he? He has the right to say to us, you, you, you think you're big stuff because of your job? I, I can take that away. Your relationship. You are to follow me and all that you have is because I have blessed you. Well, the third point, we should not lose sight of the blessings that come from the putting Jesus first in our lives. Studying this text, one commentator states of Luke 18, 18 through 30, no one can take comfort from this story. It's profoundly disturbing, end of quote. On one level it is, isn't it? It is disturbing. It is troubling. On another level, what glorious grace. What a God we serve. That he would be willing to bring this rich young ruler into his fold. That he states I will make it possible, and that he gives us blessings not only for eternity, but in this life as well. Following Christ is not easy, but it's worth every drop of perspiration, right? <laughs> Second Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction, Paul writes, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to not the things that can be seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, just as the rich young ruler, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Asked the rich young ruler. Jesus responds, do you understand who I am? I am good. Do you know what that means in your life? It means that list of 10, you got to do them all. But you can't live a full, the, the law shows we can't live up to all of that. We need a transformation of the heart. And that's through what Christ has accomplished as we read in 2 Corinthians 5. And this is why in hearing all of that, we can say, yes, Jesus, you are good. Father, we come to you in a powerful scene.
it's not what we expect. You expect this ruler to make a huge donation to the Jesus cause and be drafted in. And yet Jesus takes the rug, the very rug that he's standing on, and pulls it out from under him and says, no, this is what it means to follow me. You call me good? Do you understand what you're saying? And Lord, that, there's some perhaps here this morning that Jesus is nice figurehead. Oh, he's a great little guru from time combast. And they're hanging their hopes on what they do. And this text clearly states none of that's going to work. It's impossible. What can we do to earn salvation? But you've made it possible through a transformation of our hearts through Christ and the righteousness is accounted. Father, for some of us this morning, we've taken that a little lightly. If we did an audit, it wouldn't match up. <laughs> for one who is claiming your name and yet everything else says they're claiming self or the things of this world. Father, we need to be 100% sold out to you. Help us in our walk that we would exalt your name. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you've made the impossible possible and that we have a Savior who is good. And it's in our Savior's name, Jesus, we pray.